Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ideas Matter by William Collins. The big ideas of our times discussed by the brightest thinkers. It's 10.30 a.m., and the editors of William Collins, publishers of hard facts for over 200 years, have gathered for the weekly podcast meeting. Obviously, depending on the night before and how many glasses of wine I've had, um, but nice and early. The the team are recovering from another week of uh, Christmas parties, and so, with coffee in hand, they're discussing their favourite times of the day. Tom is late demonstrating he is not particularly a morning person. Carlos, meanwhile... I am such a a morning person. I love to get up, work out early-ish, about 5.15. And then there's Arabella. I'm married to a man who is a morning person. I am not a morning person. I am a nighttime person. I can stay up till very late in the night. And finally, Miles, who is a night owl, literally... And so I'll tell you a story about it just getting dark on Sunday. So I was in Suffolk. We'd seen a barn owl, and I was with my wife, and I had heard that you could do this. And that's if you imitate a mouse, and that's by going... You can call barn owls over to you if it's very dark. And so I called this barn owl by going... And it appeared over the reeds at head height and flew at me so that it looked like something out of Harry Potter. And the reason I know it looked like something out of Harry Potter is because my wife said to me, God, that was just like something out of Harry Potter. And like a bird to the face, it's time to discuss this week's author. 
Arabella, it's your turn this week. Who've you got for us? I'm Cathy Newman, and the idea I'd like to discuss is why women have been written out of the history books. So Cathy Newman is a lifelong feminist and uh, famously the presenter of Channel 4 News. Um, she decided to write this fantastic, accessible, fun book because um, she decided uh, in her early 30s that she didn't know enough about history, started to read lots of history books and discovered to her horror um, that many of them had no mention of women at all until you hit Queen Elizabeth. And uh, she thought to herself, well, this can't be right, um, and started to do the research. And uh, so she's put together a uh, book which we've called Bloody Brilliant Women and that is what it does. It's a history of modern Britain seen through the many, many women who made huge contributions to our history, our culture, our politics, our society Um, and she's done a great job. And so, dear listener, it's time once again to switch out the lights and bathe in the voice of our guest author, Cathy Newman, in conversation with her editor, Arabella Pike. It seems to me that there are a lot of men writing history books. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book was to try and correct that. Because I think if you're writing history, you sort of look for people in your own image. So it seems to me that it stands to reason that if you're a bloke writing about history, you're not necessarily going to notice all the amazing contributions that women have made over the years to British history. And that was really my main motivation for writing Bloody Brilliant Women, was to try and zoom in on some of those women who have achieved amazing things in so many different fields in British history and who haven't really appeared in any but, you know, quite academic history books over the years. Because, of course, British history is full of, you know, um, extraordinary figures like Elizabeth I, who possibly is one of the most written about figures in British history. But you were looking at less royal figures, I'm guessing. Yeah, and of course, we have a, a monarch on the throne at the moment who happens to be a woman. But I suppose I was looking at women who had achieved what they've achieved by dint of their own brilliance or hard work, rather than being handed a title on a plate, inherited their their value to society, as it were. And what really surprised me was that I expected women to have done amazing things in the arts or education, but actually in you know engineering, the law, science, all these very different fields, women had done extraordinary things and hadn't really got the credit that I thought they deserved. Not quite. Is there one story that started you on the research and idea behind the book? Because I wasn't taught history very well at school, um, it was slightly, I had a slightly eccentric teacher who would sort of sit on the desk and read a dictionary to us, which was, was very good for our vocab, but not so for throw our... things at you too. Exactly, yeah. Um, what was interesting, because of that, I read a lot of history books and probably forget them all again and not very good at remembering dates. But some of these history books that I read, I, I was really struck by the fact that there were no women or very few women, you know, the Queen, Agatha Christie. And in fact, one I read, I think I got to page 50 or something, and the Queen had got a mention, Agatha Christie had got a mention, and no one else, no other women. And so that was when I said about thinking, well, maybe women just were sort of on, you know, taking maybe a back they didn't seat. Do anything. Yeah, maybe they just <laughs> sat at home making the tea all that time. Sandwiches. And, yeah. But in fact, women had made extraordinary contributions to British history in so many different areas. And that I thought needed to be written about. Yeah. Were you particularly interested in, in specific areas? I think the criteria for inclusion in the book had to be 
that these women had blazed a trail in a certain way. They'd made a difference. They'd put an imprint on British history. I think the character aspect of that came into it because most of the women who are right about in detail have an interesting story to tell their interesting personalities and they and that actually has is one of the reasons why they've been so successful because they have such force of personality they don't really care that they're different or quirky they were just interested in their field tell us about Beatrice Schilling yeah my favorite she was the kind of pin-up for the book really so Beatrice Schilling was an aeronautical engineer at a time when as her biographer said it was actually easier for a woman to train as a lion tamer than an engineer (laughs) so that sort of puts it in perspective she was an incredible character that's one of the reasons I loved writing about her she was a motorbike fanatic and so when other little girls were sort of pressing flowers in the garden or whatever they did in those days she was taking apart motorbikes and working out how things worked and this stood her in amazing stead when there was a problem with the Spitfires in the war. They were crashing. I mean, I'm not an aeronautical engineer, so I don't pretend to be an expert on this, but it was to do with the negative G and the engines were getting flooded. The pilots were crashing. So lives were being lost and a solution needed to be found. Beatrice Schilling rode to the rescue, literally on her motorbike, and came up with a solution which was essentially a disc with a hole in it. And she fitted this disc to all the planes and was rewarded for her work by um, receiving, this disc received the nickname uh, Miss Schilling's Orifice, which um, <laughs> apparently she thought was very funny. So she had well, a good it sense of quite funny. It is. <laughs> it is it quite is. funny. Um, I remember Roma Agarwal told me uh, once that um, she's obviously the, the great female engineer. Who helped design the who shard. Who helped design the shard. You know, it's her view that women bring a degree of creativity to engineering and to design and to architecture. Do you think Beatrice would fit in with that theory? I'm always wary about generalising about what women do and the traits they bring. Beatrice was an eccentric, so you can't really, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to sort of put her in the mould of other women because she was a true one-off. And I think that's what struck me about so many of the women in the book was that you couldn't say, ah, that's, of course, their female creativity at work there because they were just real characters. And actually, a lot of the women didn't do the kind of things that are or were expected of women. They didn't necessarily have families. They were incredibly hardworking. They were, as well as being bloody brilliant, they were also bloody difficult. (laughs) And I think that that's something that hasn't traditionally been prized in women, whereas men are seen as these sort of eccentric geniuses. Women who are a bit different and a bit quirky and driven are seen as, you know, bloody difficult to deal with. Are there some examples from your book that you can tell us about where great prejudice and difficulties had to be overcome. Oh, by... I mean, virtually every every woman who makes a large chunk of the book um, had to overcome extraordinary prejudice. And what I thought was interesting about this was how many of those prejudices and battles that the women in the book fought are still being fought today. So let's take politics, for example. The kind of abuse that women in the public eye in politics got then is very similar to the kind of gendered abuse that women now are getting. Bessie Braddock and Leah Manning, two early Labour female MPs, were called United Dairies because they had big breasts, for example. And that's exactly the kind of slur that women in Parliament have got very recently, really. Nancy Astor, the first MP to take her seat, had a really good line in put-downs because she would go out on the 
campaign trail and she'd get heckled. So, for example, a bloke said to her on the campaign trail, how many toes has a pig got? And she just shot straight back, take your boots off and count them. (laughs) So, you know, they were robust, these women. Uh, I mean, another area where women faced incredible hurdles is education. Yeah, sure. And actually, one of the themes of the book is that women needed to get educated in order to succeed. And that was one of the big battles. So Sophia Jex Blake, one of the early female doctors, she describes the terrible prejudice that she and her colleagues endured. Um, one day they wandered into an anatomy exam and there was a live sheep wandering around the room that had been released by the male students to kind of put them off. I mean, I suppose the message was that, you know, the animals deserved to get a degree as much as women did. And so they had to battle through all this, but they succeeded. And I feel that we all owe them a great debt of gratitude, really. So, you know, many of the women that she writes about in the book depended upon changes in education as the foundation of their success. Could you tell us a little bit about that? A lot of women had to battle with the fact that they didn't have any kind of formal education. And that began to change in the 19th century, really. You had schools for women, the Girls' Day School Trust was founded. And then in terms of university education, the change was much more glacial. For example, if you went to Oxford and Cambridge, Gertrude Bell was the first woman to get a first-class honours degree at Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford. But women couldn't be full members of the university, couldn't get a full proper degree at that point. And it wasn't till much later that that inequality was levelled out. And I think Cambridge was later than Oxford. In relatively recent living memory. That's very shocking. And London University, I mean, a lot of women went to the less traditional colleges that were set up in London and particularly to study you know, medicine and supposedly masculine subjects. Is there anybody in your book in the medical profession? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the early medics had to really sort of battle to persuade the medical authorities to accept them. In some cases, they had to, they were only allowed to be, to try for a degree if they committed to make up the numbers with other women because the universities didn't want to, you know, bother to sort of advertise. But, you know, they got there in the end. So Sophia Jex Blake, for example, overturned all this prejudice and acrimony to become very successful in her own right. No, absolutely. So current debates around, you know, women in the workplace, you know, feminism, um, tends to focus on, you know, women in business. Do you see parallels of with today's debate to in the past and the period that you covered in the book? There's a, a lot of progress made over the years. But what really struck me was that women would take two steps forward, and then there'd be a sort of falling back. So a lot of progress was made actually by dint of the fact that women did a lot of war work in the First World Mm. War. And then that sort of radicalised them between the wars. And then in the Second World War, that progress continued. Although, interestingly, the female pilots didn't get paid the same as their male counterparts until virtually the end of the yeah, war. Yeah, and often, often they were flying with no navigational equipment. Exactly. And another, another of these hurdles that, that was put in their way. So that was a catalyst for change. And then after the Second World War, there was a kind of cult of domesticity. So women were expected to be homemakers. So all that progress that got made was under threat, really. And it wasn't until the 60s and then the 70s and the, the first wave of feminism, uh, or second wave, really, and um, women's lib movement, because the first wave was the suffrage campaign. It wasn't until then that progress got kind of rocket boosters. But even then, even after all that, you still think, well, we're 50 years almost after the yeah. Equal Pay Act now. 
And yet women are still fighting from cashiers to presenters at the BBC. Women are still fighting for equal pay. Never mind the gender pay gap. We're talking about the allegation is illegal pay that women are you know, doing the same job and they're getting paid less than Which men. Which is illegal. It is illegal. Obviously, the BBC denies that it is operating illegally, I should add that. But, uh, you know, this is a battle that is going on now, 50 years after that legislation got passed. So what surprised me, I think, was how much these women in history had won, but how much remains to be fought for. And, you know, it seems that the difficulties in pushing for change haven't altered that much in the 120. 30 years well, what since I think your is, book starts. Yeah, what, what I think is interesting about the different waves of feminism, you know, I think we're in fourth wave feminism now, which is broadly defined as the kind of post-Me Too social media campaign. And I think what's interesting about that is it amplifies women's voices. So if you want a campaign for equality, you've got a platform, you can mobilise people much more easily than in the past. You know, you don't have to march on Parliament to demand change, although, you know, it might help. But I think that also comes with a burden because that whole culture of, of online campaigning means that you can put your campaign up, but you can also get knocked down. You can get the kind of vitriol and abuse that we've seen aimed at women in the public eye. You know, that whole medium really has got sort of corrupted by that in a way that, you know, women in the past would face that in public face to face. But now it's 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 this sort of um, insidious germ that spread online that I think is is infecting public debate. What on earth can we do about that other than call it out whenever it's seen? Well, you know, there's a lot of discussion about regulating social media. I yeah. think social media companies deny that they are platforms. Um, in a way that, you know, traditional broadcasters are, traditional media owners. But I think that distinction is fast eroding. Well, quite. You know, they are I, publishing and disseminating content. And politicians increasingly are calling around the world for regulation. The social media companies themselves are saying, we want to be regulated. And I think yeah. that's the way that's moving. Can you put the genie back in a bottle, though? You know, this anonymity where people can hide behind, you know, anonymous handles to dole out horrible vitriol and abuse and you try and get it taken down and, you know, you just, it's not fast enough. There need to be, you, you would have thought it's not beyond the wit of these incredibly powerful, clever people, by and large men, by the way, running the social media companies. Um, it's not beyond their wit to develop some kind of algorithm that could act much more quickly than they are doing to well, tackle this. Because they're extremely effective at developing algorithms to target us with their adverts. When it makes the money. When it makes the money. I think a lot of the people in charge of these companies are now realising that there's been so much controversy about it that they're in danger of sort of killing the golden goose that laid the eggs. You know, they've got to protect their brand and they're not going to be able to make the billions they're making now if people lose respect in their platforms. Of course. Just picking up on the hashtag Me Too, the women in your book, were any of them victims of overt sexual aggression in the workplace in their lives? I mean, so many tales Many women throughout history have faced appalling discrimination and harassment. One in particular just springs to mind, Marjorie Hurst, who founded the first secretarial bureau to be floated on the London Stock Exchange. She was a single mum. Her husband, the father of her child, walked out on her and she set up a very, very entrepreneurial way. She set up this um, secretarial bureau. And when it came to float on the stock market, the, the city said to her, oh, actually, we need a man to run the show. 
she dug her heels in and prevailed. But, you know, that's typical of the kind of attitude to women in business that, you know, we've seen sex discrimination cases very recently. So there is still a problem in the city of discrimination against women. She fell foul of it early on, but stood her ground and became incredibly successful. Um, another one I'm just thinking of is the um, the genesis of the Matrimonial Causes Act in 1884 yeah. that denied a man the right to lock up his wife if she refused to have sex with him. And the tale behind that um, involves, I won't go into great detail, but something called the Jackson abduction, a woman whose husband basically deserted her and then came back and demanded his conjugal rights. And she kidnapped her, basically. And she went to court and it was a very celebrated court case and she won. And that was how that act came into being. So, yeah, all through history, you know, Me Too, the kind of inequities and inequities that gave rise to Me Too, nothing new under the sun. No. But what was new was the way that around the world, this global movement actually achieved, I think, quite phenomenal culture change. A lot of people said, oh, you know, what did Me Too, what lasting change did it actually achieve? You know, and let's see what happens to the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, for example. But... I think it has achieved a lasting culture change that in the workplace, for example, there are things that I think a lot of men think twice about doing or saying. I'm sure that's true. So that, if that's all it achieves, which I'm sure it won't be, that is quite something. Yeah. And there is a, there's a phenomenal history just there to be told, you know, going all the way back to Mary Wollstonecraft and Caroline Norton Mm. and those legal cases to try and get legal protection for women within marriage to do with you know sexual assault rape abuse of conjugal rights completely phenomenal and let's not forget it's only what (laughs) 15 years ago that the game do you remember that book the game appalling it sold millions of copies all the way around the world it was essentially a a guidebook to seduction oh yes yeah god it was is it 15 years it must be i think such a book would be Mm. completely well my impression is that such a book would be a completely unacceptable thing to publish. But then, you know, now. in some ways, in some ways, we're going backwards. When you look at, for example, the fact that we have a president of the United States now who joked about groping women. If you look at some of the things that Boris Johnson has said about women over the years, in some ways, it feels like the nature of the debate. You know, we're going backwards in yeah. some ways. I mean, it's like a push me, pull you forward yeah. in one's way and backwards in practice. I think for women in politics... It is an incredibly, it's very harsh, a hostile environment, really, in some ways at the moment, because not only are they having to deal with um, their own political battles, but also the culture and nature of the debate online and in public is so much more vicious and vitriolic than it was, you know, five, ten years ago. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. 
Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Kathy, do you think that in these days of you know populism and more demagogic uh, rhetoric, it's harder to put a feminist agenda and a fem- feminist message centre stage. It's hard to quantify, isn't it? But if you and I'm, no doubt there's research to prove me right or wrong on this, but if you look around the world, the populist leaders seem to be, by and large, men and sort of charismatic right wing men. And so, I think that that, if you look at what's happened to abortion rights, for example, in America, Brazil, Italy. On it goes. These are not, these populist, these male populist leaders don't have women's rights at, you know, the heart of their manifestos. You know, if anything, they're trying to erode women's rights. But having said that, you know, there are populist leaders who are women, you know, Marine Le Pen, for example. So I wouldn't like to to generalise about that. And I think the other side of the coin is that these populist leaders have emerged through online campaigns and platforms. And actually, feminists can use those platforms to their advantage, as Caroline Criado Perez has done, for example, in campaigning for the statue in Parliament Square. So I think it might be easy to be disheartened in this era, but actually, feminists can turn that medium to their advantage. We're talking about why women have been written out of history. And I think it's pretty much indisputable that the vast majority of history books have been written by men. Um, As women, we are required to engage with men's stories if we want to be informed about our past. And yet, did you find when you published this book that a woman's history, bloody brilliant women, a woman's history was considered niche? And how do you persuade men to get over that and to engage with a history based on women's experience? I was really clear when I wrote it that I wanted it to be a book that men could read as well. I didn't want it to be something that was seen as, you know, being put in a a pigeonhole called women's issues. And what's really encouraged me going around the country talking about the book and selling the book is how many men have bought it. And, you know, one bloke came up to me after an event. He bought 10 copies for every member of his team. And they weren't all women in his team. He just thought it was really important that they all knew about it. So I thought that was great. And uh, a, a lovely story... um, one of the first events I did, I told the story about Beatrice Schilling and a bloke came up to me afterwards. He was in a wheelchair and he said, uh, years and years ago, his teacher at school, his metalwork teacher had said, you've got to go away and find out what 
Miss Schilling's orifices. There was no internet, so they were all like, well, I don't know, and they couldn't find any books to talk about it. So they all came back in and um, the teacher said, oh, well, it's a disc with a hole in, because none of them knew. So they went off and made this disc with a hole in. He said, I've still got it in my attic, and to this day I still didn't know what it was until you told me. And I just thought how incredible that his teacher had sort of set them off on this quest and then hadn't... Hadn't followed up. Told them the story. Stop the spitfires and stalling. And how... Amazing it was that he was so thrilled to know finally the story of this disc that was sitting gathering dust in his attic. Um, so that made me really heartened that not only did lots of men want to read this book, but you can see the, the merit of men and women knowing about our history in the round. Who do you think the women from our current times would be the stars of a bloody brilliant women for 2019? I think what is so inspiring is that there are so many powerful, opinionated women who are really determined to make a difference, you know, whether that's, if you look in politics, for example, Jess Phillips, Labour MP, Anna Subri, who went off to, to found um, or help found Change UK, Margot James, who left the government over Brexit, Nicola Sturgeon, who, you know, is whatever your politics, these are women who... Ruth Davidson. Ruth Davidson, I mean, people who know their own mind, who are not going to be intimidated and they're determined to stand up for what they believe and then outside politics you know Cressida Dick the Metropolitan Police Chief first lesbian to hold that post amazing array of women you know in engineering business every field you look at and if you look at Me Too I mean if we go outside this country Tarana Burke who founded the Me Too hashtag has such a powerful story of her own about why she did that so no shortage of bloody brilliant yeah. women in 2019 and beyond. So do you feel optimistic about the state of feminism in 2019? I feel sad that feminism has become such a, a dirty word in some circles. You know, feminism, if you ask a lot of young people, are you feminist? Quite a few hesitate. Gosh. And that really shocks me. And I think yeah. it's because it's it's become a kind of, some people see it as a sort of divisive label now. Whereas for me, feminism just means, you know, equality of opportunity. Quite. And that's a no brainer. Yeah. I think because of the rise of the alt-right and, you know, alt-right commentators like Jordan Peterson, for example, he wouldn't call himself an alt-right commentator, for example. But he's followed by a lot of alt-right He's followed by a lot of alt-right fans, he is. But because of the rise of those kind of people, I think a lot of boys growing up today think that they can't be feminists. They see feminism as somehow advancing women at the expense of men. And I believe very firmly that it's got to be, I believe in the kind of he for she campaign that Elizabeth Nyama Yarrow founded that it's it always winds me up when men in the public eye say oh I've got two daughters so of course I'm a feminist so you've got to be a feminist regardless of whether you've got daughters you know this is just about giving everybody a fair crack at the whip it's about equality for boys and girls all shapes all sizes all colors Mm -hmm. equality yeah and I you know so I do I feel optimistic I feel that we are refighting many of the battles the women in the book fought but I also think that if you're a girl growing up today, you can be confident that you're going to get your education in Britain. This is obviously yeah. the rest of the world is a very it's different quite. issue. You can be confident that you're going to get your education. You're going to have many more opportunities than your predecessors had. But you you can't take for granted any of these battles that the women in the book fought. Because yeah. just look at what's happening with abortion rights across the world, oh, for quite. example. Um, so what do you think needs to be done to rectify you know, the mistakes and the opportunities that were not followed in the past to help gain greater equality for women? Well, I think it does come back to he for she, 
actually, because a lot of the women in the book fought quite a lonely campaign mm. at great toll to their own personal health, their families. And I think you can't let people do this on their own. It's got to be about mobilising support from all corners and from unexpected corners as well. When you look at um, Ellen Wilkinson, Labour MP, who marched hundreds of miles from Jarrow to Parliament in support of the shipyard that had closed. It's interesting to think what she would have done with social media now because she built that campaign and she mobilised support. She had, you know, hundreds of people marching with her at a time when it was much more difficult. You couldn't just sort of do a hashtag and, you know, hope that people climbed on board. You know, that was hard graft, getting people to back her campaign. And I think that's really inspiring that you can now launch a campaign far more easily. You know, all the petitions that you can well, put online. And, then, and Greta. Yeah. She, Greta or Greta. Greta, Greta, Greta Thunberg. Yeah. I mean, how inspiring is that? Yeah. But also, depressingly, sorry not to be optimistic about that, how much flack has she got? Well, quite awful. For being actually a lot of that is she's a slightly different girl becoming a woman. If you're a woman, you get, I mean, lots of research has shown, but anecdotally it's true as well, you will get more abuse if you're a woman, you'll get more abuse if you're a woman of colour. But with someone like her, she's also, you know, she's Asperger's. If you just seem a little bit different, you're going to attract a whole load of vitriol. And that's rather depressing that is still the case now, as it was for the women in my book. Yeah. and I mean, you're a very high-profile news journalist. Do you try in your reporting to address some of these issues? I try and get as many women as possible on the programme. Um, I'm still surprised by when I call up a woman, nine times out of ten, they'll say, oh, I'm not sure I'm qualified to speak on that. Oh. Whereas if you call up a man, there's no problem. <laughs> so that's sometimes a challenge. But I think we're succeeding more than we were in the past, which is good. And I do, you know, I try and cover stories. I did a, a big investigation on um, rape on university campus, for example, um, which is quite horrifying, the, the scale of that and how universities are handling it and failing to handle it sufficiently well. So I try and cover issues that I believe are really important. So that's one of the great privileges of my job. It's another great history book to come, I'm sure. <laughs> history in the making. History in the making. <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for coming in today to talk to us. Thank you for having me. That was Kathy Newman in conversation with Arabella Pike. Our programme today was brought to you by William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, and was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. People who helped put this episode together are Anushka Tate, Tara Al-Azawi and Jack Chalmers. Share your thoughts on this podcast by emailing ideasmatter at harpercollins.co.uk or on social at WM Collins Books. You can buy Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention as a paperback, audiobook or ebook where Kathy dives even deeper into the ideas discussed this week. Thank you for listening, and keep an eye out for the first chapter from the audiobook of Bloody Brilliant Women, which will appear in this feed on Friday. And we'll meet you back here next week when we'll discuss what our obsession with stories can tell us about the science of the human brain with Will Storr.
So in our evolutionary history, when our brains were evolving, we would have been roaming around a territory in loose bands of around 150 people. So how do you get 150 people to cooperate with no police force, with no judiciary, with no prisons? You know, is, how do you do it? You do it with gossip. To hear that episode first, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on Acast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.